The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So you can turn with me and follow along. This is what it says. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? So Father, it's a great delight to come and to read your word together, to listen to what you have to say to us because your word is what gives us life. In your word, we find truth, we find help. There is so much pain and brokenness around us all the time. When we look, when I look at my phone, I grow tired and I grow sick of seeing so much sin and hurt. But when we go to your word, we can be healed and be refreshed. So meet us now as we listen to your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me uh, just say a quick word that I miss you all, Bethlehem. I'm so used to spending not only every Sunday with you, but all the time, all week long. I'm face to face with you all. And these past several months have really been uh, sad to not be together. So I'm looking forward to July 12th. Sign up early and often, and I'd love to see you there with your mask on. We're going to pick up here from last week, uh, drinking spiritual milk, tasting that God is good, growing in spiritual maturity. And Peter is now going to introduce an analogy from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. You can go there if you like, but it says this, Behold, God is speaking. I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So let's take a look at this analogy for a moment. I hope this will be a lot of fun. In Isaiah, it's God who is giving us this analogy. And it's a building analogy. I love to build. I built a play fort. Uh, I'm always, I just built a zip line yesterday uh, with my friend Peter. Um, as you know, in Isaiah's time, these structures were made of cut stone. And so when God is talking about laying a foundation, he's talking about a stone building. The stones were cut and placed on top of each other. And the emphasis in this word picture is not yet on the building. We're going to get to that. The focus here is on the foundation. So God begins with this. I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Zion is a reference to his coming kingdom on the earth. He says further in an expanding description that that foundation is a stone, but he says more clearly a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Of course, that stone refers to Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but first I want to talk more about this. Uh, what about the, the building? Uh, a stone foundation is laid for a purpose. 
So if you're going to build a shed, you might need uh, maybe six or eight solid footings. If you're going to have a two-car garage go up, you'll want to pour a nice, firm, concrete foundation. If you're building a tower, you would need a really firm foundation. Um, last, over the past two years, in 2018 and 2020, I guess, um, I had the opportunity to visit the two tallest structures, man-made structures on the earth. And that's Taipei 101, and that is uh, the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, what kind of foundations do you think those towers had? I was very interested to learn this. The Burj Khalifa stretches into the atmosphere over a half mile high into the air. It's so tall that you can stand on the ground level and watch the sun set. Then you can go in the building and ride one of its 57 elevators to the top and you can watch the sunset all over again. It has 160 stories and it weighs over a half million tons. Imagine that, a half million tons of vertical weight in the desert. How do you do that? The foundation is 16 stories deep and the builders used over 200 million pounds of concrete to lay the foundation. That is very impressive. That's how you lay a foundation. But compared to the precious cornerstone of Isaiah 28, that's nothing. It, it's a, a grain of sand, a fleck, a fleck of dust. So what is God preparing to build? If he's gonna lay a foundation at sure, what is he looking to build? This is where Peter unveils the mystery for us in our text. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's God's building. What is this house that God is preparing to build with this tested, precious, sure foundation? In today's language, it's the church. We, the church, are the house of God. It's a home and an identity for you and me and everyone that belongs to God. And since it's our eternal home, don't you want to make sure that the foundation is even more sure than the foundation of the Burj Khalifa? I want to make sure that my eternal home, that the identity on which I build my life is going to last, not for a little while, but forever. So I came across this article in the New York Times um, about a building called the Millennium Tower. It was built 11 years ago in San Francisco, and this is what the article says. A 21-page disclosure statement given to potential apartment buyers. It read, the color and texture of the marble and granite hallways may not be completely uniform, the streets below the tower could be congested and noisy, and the landscaping in the common areas could change. But the disclosure left out what owners of the units in the building now say was a crucial detail, that the building had already sunk more than eight inches into the soft soil by the time the construction was completed, much more than the engineers had anticipated. Quote, if they had disclosed the defect, said Jerry Dodson, the owner of a $2.1 million apartment, I would never have bought here. Of course. What about the church? To give your life to Christ, to build your life on the foundation of Christ, will cost you far more 
than $2.1 million. It will require your entire life. The Millennium Tower might not be there in a few years. The Burj Khalifa might not be there in 500 years. Do you care about the sure foundation where your identity is built? Do you care how secure you are in the kingdom of God? How do we know? How do we know if the church will continue to exist for all of eternity? Look at the foundation. Its engineer is God himself who hung the sun in the sky and set it on fire. Its cornerstone is Christ by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Through Christ, all things were made. They were created by him and for him. He is before all things. How do we know the kingdom of God will last forever? Because in him, all things hold together. Church, the foundation of your everlasting home and the foundation of your identity which is Jesus Christ himself, will last forever. Because before anything was made, he was already there. And he holds all things together. Feel secure. The Burj Khalifa has got nothing on the foundations of your identity. Let's turn our attention now to the kind of building that God has in mind. This spiritual house. Uh, it's not a physical building. Peter calls it a spiritual house, to be exact. So here we come to a second analogy. The foundation is not for a shed or garage. Um, also, it's important to realize it's not a foundation of a battle station or a fortress, not a shopping mall, not a university, not a theater. It's for a house. And in this passage... This is a very important analogy. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. Have you ever stopped to think deeply about the meaning of having a house? A house is the central place, by God's design, of human life. It's the central place on earth designed for human flourishing. It's the place where we get to simply exist. We may travel all over town, conduct trade at the marketplace, uh, seek help at a hospital, be educated at a university, enjoy food at a restaurant. But at the end of the day, we all come home. So what is God's design for this house? A house is where we are raised. A house is where we can feel safe and be nourished. A house is where we go to be at peace. A house is where we rest and become rejuvenated. A house is where we welcome outsiders and make them feel at home in our house. A house is where we can sing out loud without being judged most of the time. Uh, a house is where we celebrate birthdays and graduations. A house is where we gather to grieve, to lament together. A house is where we can weep and wail and wash our face and begin to heal. In other words, a house is God's place of flourishing for humanity. Now, keep in mind, this imagery is not mainly about earthly houses, but about our heavenly home. Really about the church 
and her foundation. And that foundation in Christ. So let's look at it again. In Christ is where we are raised. In Christ is where we can feel safe and be nourished. In Christ is where we go to be at peace. In Christ is where we rest and become rejuvenated. In Christ is where we welcome outsiders to make them feel at home in Christ. In Christ is where we sing out loud without being judged. And in Christ is where we celebrate our victories, grieve our losses, weep before the Lord, wail, cry out, and in Christ is where we wash our face and where we are healed. I want to further our understanding of this central theme this morning with two more places to go. When we talk about having a home and what it means, you are probably in your home right now. When we talk about a home and what it means, we must think about what it means to live without a home. This meeting place of ours, which we've labeled on the side of the wall, Bethlehem Baptist Church, is in downtown Minneapolis. And you know what? All around us are men, women, teenagers, children, just like the kids that are watching me right now, just like the child you're holding in your arms right now. These people are living in tents without a home. So, Why am I bringing this up? Am I trying to make you feel guilty that you have a home? By no means. I also own a home. I feel grateful, not guilty, that I can provide for my family. My point is this. To live without a house is a devastating reality that many of our neighbors face. So what do we do? Let's begin by looking at our neighbors with mercy and a tender heart of love. Let's allow that love and mercy to grow in us and push us into finding tangible ways to help our neighbors. I hope I can be helpful here. Many of our precious neighbors struggle with mental health and addiction. Let's be a source of support for the mental health workers, the addiction centers that are all around the Twin Cities. These men and women are there to help our neighbors. Let's get involved in supporting those organizations. Many of our neighbors struggle with physical and medical problems. Let's be a source of encouragement and advocacy to the local clinics and medical personnel, even our own church. Some of you watching right now work with these men and women every day. I want to support you. And Bethlehem, Let's support the people that are reaching out to those that are homeless. Many of our neighbors struggle with hunger and a lack of necessary basic resources, like a hat in the wintertime, food to eat in the morning. Let's be a source of financial blessing to organizations like Jericho Road, who does a produce distribution and has a food shelf available all the time. Let's be a source of financial blessing to organizations like Involve Minnesota, who is out on the street every day under the uh, work of the, uh, the Snyders um, in meeting the basic needs of the homeless that are living right around us. I want to, again, further our understanding of this theme of having a house and the safety of a house. 
I just got a text this morning from one of our downtown pastors. He tells me, and he told all of us, 12.30 a.m. last night, we were awakened 15 to 20 gunshots right outside of our house. They looked out the window and there was a young man holding a gun, hiding behind a car, but in plain view of their house. And for those of you that are living in this way today in Phillips, I'm so sorry for the pain you are feeling and the fear that you are living in today. I've been helped with so much visibility from brothers and sisters that are telling me what's happening. I grieve with you. It is a hard thing to have the safety of your dwelling place, the one place on earth that's supposed to be safe for you, to be compromised in that way. It's a grave injustice to have that kind of fear enter your home. So we need to talk for a moment about the tragic killings of Atatiana Jefferson, Botham Jean, and Breonna Taylor because the guy with the gun wasn't outside, but inside their home. These three black Americans were killed by police in the safety of their own home. Atatiana was at home in her bedroom when bullets came flying in from a police officer. Botham Jean was eating ice cream and watching television. I do that. Nobody's shooting into my home and killing me. Brianna Taylor was at home asleep in her bed when she was killed by police officers. Bethlehem, I'm pleading with you this morning. Take a moment. Imagine that scenario and imagine that if the color of your skin meant that you might be in danger of someone killing you in your own home, we must empathize and hear the stories so that we can understand the plight of the black community in the United States. Imagine what it's like to be home, but not to be safe. The local police chief in the jurisdiction where Breonna Taylor was killed, he wrote this in his termination letter to his officer. And I quote, you violated standard operating procedures when you used deadly force by blindly firing 10 rounds into Breonna Taylor's apartment without supporting facts that your deadly force was directed at a person against whom posed an immediate threat of danger or serious injury to yourself or others. In fact, the 10 rounds you fired were into a patio, door, and window, which were covered with material that completely prevented you from verifying any person as an immediate threat, or more importantly, any innocent person present. Based on my review, this is the police chief speaking, based on my review, these are extreme violations of our policies. I find your conduct a shock to the conscience. I am alarmed and stunned you used deadly force in this fashion. 
And yet to date, that officer has not been arrested. One of the most fundamental aspects of a home is safety. When we see members of our fellow humanity being unjustly killed in our, in our own homes, we should cry out for justice. I would cry out for you if you were shot in your home, Bethlehem. If someone came into your home and killed you, I would cry out for justice for you. Will you cry out for justice for those that have been unjustly slain? Why? Because God is a God of justice. When the central place of human flourishing that God created is under attack, Christians should deeply care, cry out for justice, and do the work to see that justice is delivered in our lifetime. Now, I also recognize that the environment in which we are living today is a horrible place for men and women who have devoted their life to public safety. I'm talking about our police officers. So let me be extremely clear here. Police officers are men and women who are created in the image of God. And for that fact alone, we should love and care for those men and women who are serving as police officers. I deny that police officers are the cause of racism in our society. You know what the cause of racism is? Indwelling sin in our hearts. I also believe that no one is immune to racism. I myself battle racist tendencies in my own heart all the time. The biblical command to not show partiality is not only to some, but to all Christians. I also believe that just as no person is immune to racism, there is no man-made organization that is immune to racism. Organizations are made up of fallible human beings. Is it a far stretch to say that the organization's that we create might be plagued with the same sins that, plays, that plague our individual lives? Is it possible that the human sin of racism has crept into our human institutions? Think with me. Stay with me. Do we fear that corporations might commit the sin of greediness and act unethically for decades? Do we fear that restaurants might commit the sin of laziness and serve unsanitary food? Do we fear that UPS and FedEx might commit the sin of carelessness and break our things? Do we fear that airlines might not actually care about our lost luggage? Do we fear that the government is trying to mask our civil liberties? We know that humans as individuals sin, sin in singular ways. Can it follow then that groups of humans sin in group ways? This can be really hard for Americans to recognize. When I read our text this morning, it began with this little three-letter word, you. As you come to him, 
You yourselves, it says. Americans are fiercely independent. What do we say? Give me liberty or give me death. We don't say give us liberty or give us death. We are an independent people. In North American English, we don't even have a distinct word to represent the second person plural. We make up words like y'all or you guys. Uh, we, we don't experience life a, as a group. We, we think of ourselves as individuals. But in the Bible, as in our verse this morning, we find that God speaks mainly the language of y'all or you guys. He speaks to Israel as a group. He speaks to the church as a group. Here's my point. If you are a part of an organization, you should love that organization you should be loyal to that organization. But you must never forget that your primary allegiance is to the God of justice, peace, and love. And that your second allegiance is to your neighbor. If you see pervasive patterns of prejudice in your organization, God is calling you to cry out. God is calling you to do things to bring about righteousness in the field where you are working. Partly, that's why God put you there as a believer. And if after you're giving it your best effort, your organization simply will not change, but forces you to deny God's love for justice, God's love for charity, you may need to consider moving on from that organization. We're going to turn now to the last part of our passage, focusing on living stones. Peter says, you are living stones, being built up as a house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. So here we encounter Peter's third and final analogy in these two verses. Uh, who dwells, who lives in the house that God is building? I think the better question is, who is the house that God is building? So here we have a house with this very, very firm foundation. And each part of that house is a living stone. And we all together make up that house. Peter goes on to tell us that the function of the house, what goes on within this house is that it offers spiritual sacrifices to God as a holy priesthood. So what the heck does that mean? That's what we're going to dig into next. So we don't have time to get into the, the beautiful history of the priesthood, but let's say this at least. Before the coming of Christ, in Old Testament times, the people of God needed someone, an intermediary between them and God. And so God set forward one of the tribes of Israel, Levi. And that tribe produced the priests. That was a special role, a go-between between sinful man and a holy God. So what was the job of that priest? Well, he had lots of jobs, but I'll talk about this one job, was that every year that priest would go behind this thick wall-like curtain and make sacrifices for Israel. And generally the sacrifice went like this. I have sin, and I know that I'm sinful. So I bring a perfect lamb with me to the priest. And I place my hand on that lamb. 
And that sin that's staining my garment is going to that lamb and it is on him now. And that priest, in order to make atonement, payment, correction, removal of my sin, he kills the lamb and lets the blood come out. In fact, some of that blood is even put on the priest and sprinkled onto the people. And that is a symbol of washing. The blood of the lamb washes away the sin of the people. So in this last analogy, Peter's saying that we, those who have been purchased by Jesus, the Lamb of God, we have now become like those priests. And our job as priests is to do the same thing that the priests have always done. Make sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So the question then is, where's my knife? Where's my thing, you know, to spray the blood? How do we begin to do this? Uh, Here's how I see it. When we were born, we were born as enemies of God, all of us. Born in sin, born broken. But when we turn to the Lord, he removes that sinfulness from us. We become new creations in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who is living in me. And so my whole life, every part of my life is now lived for him. So what do I do with my body? It belongs to God. How about the thoughts of my mind? They belong to God. The emotions of my heart? It belongs wholly to God. The dreams that I have for my future? They belong to God. The desires that I have every day? They belong wholly to God. My skills, my time, my energy, my hopes, my fears, my abilities, my possessions, my weaknesses, my losses, my tragedies, my griefs, God bought them all. They all belong to him. So the end result is that my whole life is now reframed as one continual fragrant offering to God. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, whatever I do, I must remember that I do it not for myself like I used to do and am today often prone to do. But everything that I do is done as a offering to the Lord. That little lamb, that is all my dreams, all my desires. I bring that as an offering to the Lord. Those are my spiritual sacrifices that I make before God. So practically, practically, how do we do it? I think that many of us have this model. So what does it mean to be a Christian that's bringing spiritual sacrifices to God? So I kind of feel like I was raised in this atmosphere that was something like this. Um, Get up early, obviously, because Jesus rose early from the grave. Um, Do your devotions, because that's how we ensure God is still happy with us. Give your money to church. Volunteer at your local library. Be different at work so people will ask you, and then you can point to the Bible on your desk. Uh, Hope that a stranger sits next to you on the plane so you can share the gospel with them and then leave. And don't run into me in the main hall or you might wind up doing the dishes for Sunday brunch. So being facetious, all of those things really are in their heart a good thing. But is that what Peter has in mind? Is that what it means to bring spiritual sacrifices to God? Let me reframe the question. Tim Keller asks this wonderful question, so helpful. 
He asked us about vocation, but I'm going to apply it to how do I make spiritual sacrifices in my life? How, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? What Tim Keller gives us here is three lenses. The first lens is what do I know about myself? What are my skills? What are my passions? What are my resources and opportunities? The second lens is this. What do I know about the will of God? We can go to Isaiah 58 and learn a revealed will of God. Is it not to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Is it not to love your neighbor as yourself? Does Jesus not say, blessed are the peacemakers? God's will is not hidden from us. So the first lens again is, what, who am I? Second lens is, what does God want? And the third lens is, what need do I see in the world around me? Take the time to look at and listen to your neighbors. And when those three lenses come together, we are able to live a life where we are helpful to other people. And that is our spiritual sacrifice, one of them to God. In this season where we see so much injustice on the streets, the gross injustice of murdering unarmed black men, the gross injustice of looting and burning down small businesses. There are so many people who are asking, what can I do? I think I'm asked that every single day. What can I do? Let me try to be helpful here. One verse, two words, very plain, Micah 6.8, do justly. That's so beautiful, so helpful. Do justly. Look around you. Listen to your neighbors. Learn what's happening in the lives of those that are near you. Then lean in with what you love to do. Lead with where you have experience. Is there a single mom on your block? Do you like to cook? A home-cooked meal is welcome. You don't even need to ask. Is trash piling up in your park? Or maybe needles? Do you like to go for walks? Bring a trash bag and make your park a nicer place to be. Are there kids in your neighborhood whose parents both work two full-time jobs? Get to know those families and see how you can be helpful maybe even one hour or one meal a week. Do you notice that the immigrant church down the street from you has cracked and peeling paint? Do you like to work outdoors? Gather a group of people and see if you can be helpful there. Have you read that Minnesota has the largest disparity in primary education in the entire nation? Do you like to read? Sign up. Bring a few friends. Tutor at the school that's in your neighborhood. As a holy priesthood in the house that God is building, our lives should be lived with intentionality. These intentional acts of love and mercy and justice is how we bring spiritual sacrifices to God. This is the work that that house is doing. 
as a holy priesthood, our lives poured out for others is a sweet fragrance, not only to God, but to a watching and dying and hurting world. And as we participate in the lives of others, we will not only be able to show them the love of God, but we will be able to invite them to become themselves a living stone in that house, in the house that God is building. I grew up in a gospel-free environment. Now, I don't mean that I grew up in a church-free environment. We went to church every week. I don't mean that I grew up in a God-free environment. We believed in God. But going to church and believing in God does not mean that you are not also living in a gospel-free environment. So what do I mean? When I was young, in the house where I grew up, this is what we faced. Our family did not have a way to deal with the problem of sin in our lives. This is what would happen. I would do something egregious, sin against my my family, my parents. Um, They would become upset with me in their heart and they would move toward punishment, okay? Sin toward them, punishment toward me. When I was young, uh, the form of punishment was corporal. I got spanked. But when I was older, the punishment changed. I can remember a time when I quarreled with one of my siblings. And after that sibling was dealt with, um, I remember hearing from one of my parents so clearly, which translates roughly to, you're no good either. Let's look for a moment at what's happening in this exchange. Having done wrong, I was bearing the burden of guilt. I wasn't innocent. I did wrong and I was guilty in sin. And in any family or group or society, wrongdoing needs to be corrected, right? We can't live in harmony with one another when there's outstanding wrong being done among us. So how did my family deal with my sinful behavior? Knowing that the sin was present and that it was present in me, they pushed me away. That's what's happening. When you tell someone, you are no good, you are pushing them away. Like a person with a disease that must be quarantined, I was rejected from the family group. So I I think I would go to my room, but mainly I would be alone. And I would feel miserable about myself. I would not be welcome to interact with parents in a normal, happy way. Um, it, would, it was expected that I would be humble and compliant for an, really an undetermined amount of time. Like how much, how much of this is I supposed to do? Uh, um, there was no way that I was able to pay for my sin. During this time, my wrongdoing was not removed. It was simply pushed down below the surface through um, being banished, and it became a calcified part of who I was. There was no way to get rid of it. I, I couldn't make reparations for the things that I had done wrong. I couldn't remove my guilt. It was just pushed into me, and there it sat. 
After a while, life would become normal again, right? Dishes pile up and then they call you from your room to do the dishes. And um, I was never given an opportunity to, to, to fix this. I could never be free from that shame. This was our way of dealing with sin. But church, I have really great news. This is not how the gospel works. The gospel offers a clear and effective way for actually removing that sin instead of pushing it down. So let's go back to the first part of the passage. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus, though sinless and without any wrongdoing in his hands, was rejected by his people, the very people he created and came to love. It's one thing to be rejected like I was because you did something wrong. It's a whole different thing to be rejected when you have done nothing. And that's what happened to Jesus. You see, Jesus was rejected, unjustly lynched, and hung on a tree. And as he hung there dying, he absorbed not only the rejection of man, he absorbed every single bit of God's rejection. Did you know that? That's what happened on the cross. In the moment of crucifixion, Jesus was utterly rejected by his own father. He felt all of our calcified shame, though he himself never sinned. If there was ever an unjust murder, it was on the cross. But God was at work here. This is how he was laying a foundation. He was laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Jesus got no fair trial before his execution. That was his testing. This is how Jesus became the precious cornerstone. And upon his death, something amazing happened. That thick wall-like curtain in the moment of his death was torn in half. Literally torn in half on that day. This separation between God and his people was destroyed by the death of Christ. In the moment of his death, all of our sin and wrongdoing was placed on Jesus, the Lamb of God. He was slain and his blood is sprinkled on us and washes away our sin. It's completely paid for. Unlike my gospel-free environment growing up, where the sin was pushed down into me, Jesus ripped it right out, took it on himself, and killed like a lamb. He paid for and removed my sin. And I'm telling you, it feels really good. I am full of joy over and over and over because I have an escape from the damnation of sin and that same invitation is given to you. Put your trust in Christ. You don't need to carry the weight of all the wrong you have done. It was paid for on the cross. So instead of rejection because of sin, there is actual payment and removal of our guilt. And instead of cold, hard isolation, 
God is gathering us as living stones. When Jesus emerged from the grave, he emerged as a living stone. And in him, we have also become living stones. We no longer need to live in isolation from one another. God is building us up into one unified house in Christ. And he's calling us to bring this message to those that have not heard and calling them. I'm calling you this morning. Be a living stone in the house of God with me. So let me close with this word that Pastor Tom Steller helped me so well with. I'm going to read this verbatim. Church, pray earnestly with me that the disunity in our nation, which the enemy is trying to use to tear that church of Jesus Christ apart, may be overcome by the Holy Spirit. May the Spirit so center us on Christ that we will be free to listen well to those who are hurting the most. May he guard us from heading into echo chambers where we only listen to the people who agree with us. May he keep us from joining those who take their hollow arguments into the comment sections and attack one another. Did God lay two foundations in Zion? Is he building two houses opposed to one another? Church, you are a holy priesthood. You are secure forever in Christ. So let's allow God to build us up into one unified spiritual house. Let me pray. Lord God, we give you thanks. Because when you saw us isolated, rejected, and alone in our sin, in fact, when we were far off, as Ken said earlier, and we couldn't come to you, we didn't even want to come to you, you saw us and you decided to come and to rescue us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dying on the cross and paying for my sin. Thank you for being the sacrificial lamb of God onto which all of my sin and the sin of everyone who would like to be forgiven to be placed on that lamb. Thank you for being willing to be slain, Lord Jesus, and thank you for conquering death by rising on the third day. You arose as the living stone, the precious, chosen, holy cornerstone. And allow us to be a part of the house that you are building. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.